Julie and I are now watch an episode of West Wing every night years old. Um, so we get together at night after dinner and we watch an episode or two on HBO Max of The West Wing. And I can, as what clearly uh, I believe myself to be a West Wing expert, authoritatively say that the best of the West Wing episodes are the Christmas episodes. And uh, the best of one of those has a side plot dealing with a new speechwriter who has been brought on board the president's staff. The, a member, another member of the speechwriting staff begins to be concerned that this new speechwriter is just really too intimidated by the president to actually be of good use to him. And so he, without this new speechwriter knowing it, inserts a note that is supposedly from the president in a speech that is being constructed, which if the president inserted that note on his own would make him a fool and it would be a political disaster. And the reason that this other speechwriter puts the note in there is to see if the new speechwriter will overcome his intimidation and say to the president, that is a bad idea. Well, the new speechwriter remains almost completely incapacitated in the uh, president's presence and almost comically so doesn't bring it up. He fails the test. And when he finally figures out that it was a bad note and it was put in there as a test, he's angry and he wants to know why was I misled in this way. And his boss, the other speechwriter, says this. He says, it's important when you advise the president that you have the ability to speak truth to power. In other words, to help the president, you have to be able to tell him the truth regardless of any perceived cost to you. To help the president, you have to be able to speak truth to power. If you would please find Daniel chapter 5 in your copy of God's Word. Now, by this point in Daniel's life, he's been advising the most powerful men in the kingdom, the empire of Babylon for decades. He's been advising the Babylonian kings. But he's also apparently been moved to the back bench as an advisor because when Nebuchadnezzar was alive, he was the golden child. He was always the one that had the answer and had the, the king's ear. But as King Nebuchadnezzar had passed away and other kings had come in, these newer kings had staffed their court and their advisors with loyalists. And because of that, Daniel's just not being called upon as much anymore. He's, he's not being uh, brought to the halls of power to advise the king. However, he's still in a place of prestige and privilege related to the rest of the world. And so, if he were ever to be called upon, it would be very, very easy for him to say, I need to maintain my station, my comfortable place in life, and to hedge the truth that he would speak to the king lest he lose what station he had. It would especially be easy to do this if the stakes were especially high. And when we come to Daniel chapter 5, the stakes have never been higher. King Belshazzar, actually a co-regent of his father king, who was an absentee from the capital at this time, was hosting an ill-advised feast. Really, honestly, let's call it what it was. It was a drunken orgy. He was hosting this on the night of October the 12th, 539 B.C. It was the last night 
of the Babylonian Empire. The Persian armies were literally at the gates of Babylon's capital. So this party is either an effort to ply loyalty from his leaders and advisors with booze and sex or it was a mixture of that, and this is really the more likely thing, a mixture of that and an exercise in absolute denial as to how dire the situation was. Well, any effort that the king had made to continue this ruse that everything was going to be fine is about to be completely supernaturally undone. I hope you found Daniel 5. Look at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast, which is what I've said, for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and you'll see a little note there in your copy of God's Word, drawing your attention either to a footnote or a side note, and what it tells you is that probably the better understanding of that is predecessor. Uh, the, the word's literally translated father, but it probably means in this context predecessor because Belshazzar was not the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So it's being communicated that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken these vessels of gold and silver out of the temple in Jerusalem. And he commanded that those be brought in, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, if you've been here when we've been going through this first part of uh, the book of Daniel together, you'll remember in Daniel chapter 1, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar had taken golden serving vessels from the temple in Jerusalem when he'd conquered it. But he'd apparently, Nebuchadnezzar, had developed enough of an appreciation, if not outright acceptance, of the God of Israel that he didn't want to risk blaspheming this God by drinking from these sacred relics. Belshazzar, however, had had no such scruples with this, and so he had brought them into this sordid feast and was drinking from them with his harem and his senior leaders. To say that he was about to figure out that that was probably a bad idea is an incredible understatement. Look at verse 5. Immediately, while this was going on, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, you think? And his thoughts alarmed him, you think? And his limbs gave way, you think? And his knees knocked together. I mean, this, this is a bad thing. Everybody can tell it, and it sets a whole lot of things in motion. Belshazzar calls in his spiritual advisors to see if they can figure out what this supernatural graffiti is that has been written on his wall, and when they can't do it, it just doesn't do a lot of good for Belshazzar's general emotional situation. So he's panicked. And enter the queen mother. Our English translations in the verses that follow kind of mask that or obscure that as her identity, but it was the queen mother and likely the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar who knew of Daniel's service years ago to her father. She tells Belshazzar of that service, and so he says, well, let's see if it works. And essentially, Daniel gets called back up to the majors, as it were. He gets there. He sees the writing. And the question becomes, will he speak truth to power and risk getting relegated to the bench again or worse? 
Well, after preliminary introductions, we pick up the story in verse 16. Belshazzar says, I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And here we go. Is Daniel going to say the, the, the truth? Is he going to speak truth to power? Look at verse 17. The Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be yourself and give your rewards to another. You keep your gifts, boy. I don't need them. I think we have our answer. He's going to speak truth to power. He goes on to say, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And in the verses that follow, he essentially proceeds to say, King, I knew a guy a lot like you once. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard of him. He was arrogant and he was blasphemous. And my God took him down a notch, humbled him, drove him mad till he figured out there was no God like my God. But you haven't been humbled. In fact, you've done what Nebuchadnezzar never did on his worst day. You drank from the vessels of the temple of Jerusalem. And with those vessels in hand, you've worshipped gods of gold and silver and iron and bronze and wood and stone. And you've mocked the one true God. So now hear this, O king, he says in verse 24, then from his, God's presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, mini, tekel, and parson. And this is uh, the interpretation of the manner. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is about to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. All of those words in Daniel's language uh, conveyed the meaning that he has shared with the king in these verses. Now, I want you to remember something. If you've been here, you know this. When Nebuchadnezzar had been confronted by the truth, when Daniel had spoken truth to the power that was Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had always, always humbled himself, but not Belshazzar. I want you to look at what he does. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was closed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation made about him that he should be third in the ruler of the kingdom. What is, what is Belshazzar doing? Well, he's just heard. It's over. But he continues to go on like life's normal. I mean, he continues to act like he's a king with a kingdom that's not about to be taken away. Which brings up the question, why did Daniel accept these gifts when he rejected them earlier? The only thing I can come up with is he thought, well, it's temporary. I mean, this isn't going to last long anyway. I mean, I, I can wear them for the next few hours, but after that, I'm going to have a new boss. I mean, it's, I really is, I think, what is going on here. Because, look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Daniel 5 wraps up. Daniel did it. He spoke truth to power as he'd always done. When the stakes were high and his life was on the line, he stepped forward and he spoke with a clear, distinct voice. Now, of course, 
Most of us, let's face it, probably all of us will never have the ear of the most powerful people in the world. That's the reason we like shows like The West Wing or, for Netflixers, The Crown, which my wife tells me is coming on Friday. And apparently, that's what I'll be doing, if you're wondering, next weekend. We like those shows because they give us fictionalized access to the halls and persons of power that we'll never personally experience. But I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to say. You and I speak truth to power every day. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say again. You are either speaking truth to that power or you are speaking that power's truth. What do I mean? I want you to listen to what one of the early Christian leaders named Paul wrote in a book called Ephesians that we find in the New Testament, the last half of the Bible. He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The concept that Paul is talking about in that passage of Scripture is something called spiritual warfare, and it's the biblical idea that we find here and reinforced in other places, that every day we battle against supernatural forces. Okay? That's true. Where are the battlefields upon which this war is waged? There are two that I want to talk about this morning that I I think are germane to our passage from Daniel today. They are cultural battlefields and political battlefields. And on those battlefields, we are either speaking truth to the power present or we are being used by that power to speak its truth. Every two years, uh, Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Christian Resources partnered together to take, and I'm going to read the quote from the study, to take the theological temperature of the United States to help Christians better understand today's culture and to equip the church with better insights for discipleship. And the 2022 report, which came out last month, was, was sobering. One of the key findings is that those who identify as true theological evangelicals, and I'm not talking about the voter block that we hear about all the time in the news, but, but those who strongly agree that the Bible's the highest authority for belief, who strongly believe that personal evangelism is important, who strongly believe that Jesus is the only means to get to heaven, who strongly believe that only followers of Jesus get to go to heaven, of people like that, in other words, people like us, who identify as true theological evangelicals, a rapidly growing number of them believe that gender identity is a choice and that the biblical teaching on homosexuality is outdated. Here's the actual data. 37% of theological evangelicals, in other words, more than a third, believe that gender identity is a choice up from 32%. In 2016. And 28% believe that the Bible's teaching on homosexuality was outdated, up from 19% in 2016. And as you continue to look at the study, none of that should surprise us because there's an increasing number of theological evangelicals who don't believe the Bible to be literally true. 26% of people like us don't believe the Bible is literally true, up from 17% who didn't believe the Bible was literally true 
in 2016. So what's going on? I think it's fairly obvious. It's obvious that a growing number of people like us in this room aren't speaking truth to the powerful cultural tides that are seeking to rework the shorelines of sexual expression in our culture. And the reason for that is because we are, according to the study, increasingly disconnected from the authority of God's Word in our lives. On the spiritual battlefield of culture, then, followers of Jesus are increasingly speaking culture's truth. The other spiritual battlefield that I want to address is the political battlefield on this day, only two days away from the election, because I believe it it comes up in the State of Theology report. Because the survey provided researchers with a big head-scratcher. Every single finding showed a rapidly growing disconnect from the morality of Scripture, except in one area, abortion. The reason it was a head-scratcher was because, again, remember, the rest of the survey showed that evangelicals were increasingly rejecting the authority of Scripture and therefore its morality. So why researchers actually continue to wonder and will wonder for a long time, did the percentage of those who believe that abortion to be a sin actually grow significantly from 2016 to 2022? In other words, if evangelicals don't embrace increasingly the authority of Scripture informing their beliefs about sexuality, why do they suddenly have a biblically formed view of abortion that's growing more and more biblical? I suspect answering that question is going to provide more than a few Ph.D. students fodder for a dissertation. But if I were a Ph.D. student, and thank God I am not a Ph.D. student... I know where I'd start looking. I'd start looking at politics. Here's what I believe about the survey's finding and something I've believed for a long time. And just so you'll know, this is not something new for me. The first time I preached about what I'm about to share with you was in a chapel at Midwestern Seminary over nine years ago. And we'll actually make that Uh, video of that chapel sermon available for you online through our website and social media pages uh, this next week. If you're a glutton for punishment, just be aware, for some reason, I'm far less gray than I am today. But this has been going on long before the nuclear political environment of the day. Here's what I've long believed and talked about for the first time publicly nine years ago. Political convictions are increasingly forming driving our religious convictions. We are speaking the truth of our politics, and if it happens to match up with biblical morality, well, it's just coincidental. I think further study of this survey will show us that this survey revealed that our commitment to life has increased in the face of decreasing allegiance to biblical authority because abortion has become the cornerstone of our politics. And maybe we can rationalize that as being not that big a deal because abortion is so heinously evil. Why, we ask ourselves, worry about why we are for something if that something ends up being right. In other words, Who cares how we got to the answer as long as it's the right answer? Here's why. What truth will we speak when our political truth contradicts the truth of Scripture? 
from my experience, part of the reason I'm grayer, I'll tell you what we'll do. We will not, more often than not, speak the truth of Scripture, and we'll speak the truth of our politics, whatever that might be, and then we'll read that back into Scripture, making Scripture say things and forms attitudes in our lives that it never is meant to convey. On the spiritual battlefield of politics, followers of Jesus are increasingly speaking politics truth. And now more than ever, our country needs the distinct voice that only Jesus followers can offer. So how does that happen? Let me show you three things I think Daniel models for us in this passage, and then we'll close. First, live so that the truth is seen. Which raises the question, how do you see truth? You see it in its difference, in its distinctiveness. I want you to look back at verse 11 of Daniel 5 with me. Remember, Daniel, probably completely unknown to King Belshazzar, and so the queen mother who would have known Daniel from the days of her youth and his history with Nebuchadnezzar brings his story back to the royal court. And she says this in verse 11, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit, circle that if you're comfortable, of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, underline that, circle it if you're comfortable with doing so, an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, Daniel whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called... He will show you the interpretation. What is she saying? She's saying there was something different about this guy I remember from when I was a kid. And it extended past him just having the right answers. There was something distinct about him. And that was the story about his difference that she was bringing to the king. A follower of Jesus who is speaking truth to cultural and political powers that rise up in our personal conversations time and time again will always be square pegs in a round hole. We should stand out in our actions, our attitudes and convictions on the spiritual battlefields in which we find ourselves. Sure, there may be times where we're square pegs in a rectangular hole. I mean, some of the angles fit. That's God's common grace at just allowing people to be able to come to the right answer. But listen to me, there should be no other place where you feel at home and where you fit in than in your church family. It doesn't mean that we're all going to agree on the solutions, political solutions to the Troubles that face us. I mean, these are complex solutions. But we'll absolutely agree on what matters most and where the hope of our world is. Because the king and the kingdom we serve is not of this world. And we should always, always stand out. And if our voice meshes perfectly with the power voices of culture and politics, you can absolutely know that you are speaking their truth and not speaking the truth of your king. Speak so that the truth is seen, so that it stands out. Then speak so that the truth is heard. Sometimes 
in order to be heard, you've, you've got to be confrontational. Daniel certainly was confrontational in our passage today. And one thing I didn't point out, he was confrontational in the face of condescension uh, shown to him by uh, the king. It's subtle to our eyes and ears removed some 2,600 years from the actual event, but it's there. Daniel, in a verse I didn't read, is addressed as an exile from Judah. Remember, you don't belong here. You're not one of us. And then the king says he's heard of what Daniel can do. And there's a, an element in him saying that that is something like, you're going to have to prove it to me. And so what does Daniel do in the face of that condescension? He says, keep your gifts. And I'm not just going to tell you what the writing says. I'm going to tell you the sin in your life that caused the writing to appear in the first place. There are times when we have to stand and say, thus saith the Lord, and be confrontational. But remember this, when Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar, he always showed concern about him. He was always worried about his spiritual condition and even encouraged him to repent when judgment came. In, in Daniel chapter 1, he's concerned about his overseer who is worried that Daniel's request to change his diet is going to threaten his life. There is always, always a desire to show his care and concern for the people to whom he is speaking. That is some of the excellent spirit that Nebuchadnezzar's daughter remembered from her youth. That is why his story remained alive. That is why he is being remembered in this event. Daniel was a good man. And sometimes he might say things to you that really made you wildly uncomfortable, but he could be trusted. Followers of Jesus need to be heard. Speak in ways that you can be heard. Understanding that sometimes there's no way around it, you're going to be confrontational. But can we all agree that the truth of what we have to say is confrontational enough that our first move in our chess match with culture doesn't mean to be launch the missiles? Can we all agree that intentionally trying to start World War III in every disagreement is not necessary because our truth is confrontational enough. Maybe being heard, really heard, engaged, requires that those to whom we are speaking think we care about them. Kate DiCamillo is an author of children's books uh, that I'd never heard of. Frankly, I'm sorry if that makes me a bad person. I'd never heard of her. But I promise you that my elementary school principal wife had heard of her, and she was very excited that I was going to reference her today. She's written some children's books uh, that deal with some decidedly difficult topics, death, abandonment, and, and she was asked why she included those topics in children's books in an article in Time magazine. Um, she was asked, well, shouldn't you... Shouldn't you, as a children's author, work to shield children from these harder truths and try to help them preserve their innocence for a little while longer? But I loved her response. She said, it wasn't a sacred task to hide the truth from children, but it was a sacred task to figure out how to tell the truth but make that truth bearable. 
how to tell the truth, but make that truth bearable. When we are screaming at cultures or politics, abandonment of the truth, we may be telling the truth, but we aren't making it bearable. I want you to look at how Jesus engaged the masses on difficult topics, and you'll get a master's class on how to tell the truth in a way that makes that truth bearable. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be accepted or that you'll be loved. They killed him. Next week, they'll throw Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, it's not going to make everything okay, but shouldn't we seek to tell the truth in bearable ways? I think we should. The goal, in other words, should be to win a heart and not win a fight. One last thing. Listen so that truth is embraced. We, we need to never forget this. We're human beings, every person I'm looking at. It's possible for us to be deceived. God's Word will never fail us, but we'll fail God's Word. We'll bring, we'll import our ideas and our biases into the Word and put on our uniquely sculpted glasses. I'm, in other words, I put on my Derek Lynch glasses and I read Derek Lynch back into the Word of God and I will shut my ears sometimes to what God's Word says. You'll do it too. This is what we do. Sometimes, sometimes, God will need to send a hand on the wall and a Daniel to you and say to you, the writing on the walls for you. You are the one who has been deceived. And take that and filter what you're hearing through God's Word and listen and stop trying to win a fight or defend yourself. And listening means more than simply acknowledging that something is right. You know what? The king in our passage never questioned Daniel. Oh, well, you're probably right about that. And then he's dead just a few hours later. He, he assumed Daniel was right, but he didn't repent, and he died that night. And so as we close, what, what truth has God been trying to speak to the strongholds in your life? Where have you mustered the spiritual power to shut out friends and family, to shut out God's voice when you're reading his word? It might be in the areas that the survey showed us. Perhaps you've been speaking against God by speaking culture's truth, or perhaps you've been speaking against God by speaking politics' truth. Perhaps you've shut out His voice in even deeper ways. Perhaps you've shut out His voice even in ultimate ways, maybe in ways that have caused you to reject Jesus as Savior altogether. If that's the case, listen to what the Spirit is saying to you now. We started by quieting our hearts before the Spirit, seeking God's voice as to whether or not we were really attaching ourselves in the way that we just professed through song to Jesus. I want to close by stilling ourselves once again and seeing if there are ways that we are intentionally drowning, uh, trying to drown out God's voice and ways that we have been speaking the truth of other things and not the truth of Jesus. Let's do that right now. Heads bowed, nice closed.